transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Night has fallen on the Mojave and fire is on our minds tonight. Wildfire. Wildfires tearing through the dry chaparral terrain of the Southern California coastal mountains and canyons. A rich and often wild landscape of pine, oak, sycamore, fat with dry weeds this December. An explosion of grasses and invasive weeds that grew up earlier this year after so many hard years of intense drought. And it all dried to a crisp in the searing summer that followed. Rain is not in our forecast in the deserts of California and Arizona and southern New Mexico over these next weeks. It's too warm for almost winter and there's no rain and fire is a very big danger for all of us out here, whether alongside a nature preserve or a national forest or a national monument. These more or less natural and protected lands around our giant cities are things we have because we wisely chose to keep them intact, but we also love putting our houses right up against these places. The urban wildland interface is often described by the biologists and the firefighters. I tell you, I am as guilty as they come when you're talking about human habitation right on the edge of the wilderness right on the edge of a preserve or a natural park or the national forest. I want to walk out my door and into the desert, into the rocks, onto the trail, down the river, up the coast, up the mountain. My God, you make a bargain when you live out where you can breathe. And that bargain goes something like, Well, there are no jobs and not much in the way of restaurants and bookstores are few and far between and good luck trying to get a decent cocktail, although you can get good beer and spirits. You can get organic wine at the health food store, but you make trade-offs. You consider the quality of life and if your quality of life requires a lot of open space and quiet and clear bright skies... Well, you can rule out the oyster bar, sadly. And you pay a premium on your homeowner's insurance because, of course, that big fire could come any day, at any hour, at an hour of its own choosing, like a thief in the night. Like a thief in the night, like the thief who pried the water heater off the side of a certain homestead cabin desert magazine office in Joshua Tree on the highway, the one with the yellow and black sign out front. The urban planners, generally a thoughtful bunch even when their thoughts proved wrong, like to talk about the problems of homes along the urban wildland interface as if there was a way to completely avoid it. There's always a frontier. Always a line between one thing and another. A transition zone, if we are lucky. An abrupt boundary like a highway or a wall in most cases. And in a place like Southern California or Metropolitan Phoenix or Las Vegas or Salt Lake City or Reno or 
the desert suburbia of the Antelope Valley or Yucca Valley or Victorville or Barump, that interface is likely to be desert. Low desert, high desert, desert woodland, desert riparian, and in these strange, if not unexpected new times, it will be useful to figure out ways to make these habitations more resistant to fire. There is a fine old structure in Yosemite Valley called the Awani Hotel, which was designed within the regular reality of forest fires. The timbers you see on the building exterior are made of concrete, molded from the real thing so that wildfires could not ignite the now historic hotel in that usual way. Adobe is fire resistant, even if the roofing is often flammable. But a single story wood framed house is particularly suited to earthquake country. A stud built cabin can withstand just about anything except fire and neglect. Almost any house or homestead will retreat into the landscape after an uncertain number of years of abandonment. I like those Tunisian, mostly underground, dome houses like you see in Star Wars. The moisture farm on the desert planet where Luke Skywalker lives in the movie. Luke's family house in that 1977 movie was a traditional Tunisian residence that had been converted into a hotel and it's still there, last I heard. You can even build such a thing out here in the American desert. Watch out for the radon gas. The Cal Earth Institute out in the western Mojave has a method for making sturdy desert homes out of thin bags of whatever dirt or sand or gravel is on the ground at the home site. The finished homes look ancient and futuristic all at once. There are earth bag buildings around the world in the West Bank and in Arizona, Joshua Tree and Pioneer Town, Lucerne Valley, Johnson Valley. One of these earth bag buildings famously survived the big earthquake in Nepal in 2015. Some people want to live in shipping containers. Some people like barns or condos or live work studios or yurts or apartment courts or houseboats. It doesn't much matter as long as you are comfortable and as long as your home won't easily catch fire or tumble in an earthquake or a hurricane or a tornado. The problem at this moment in time in the West is that the combination of very dry air and very strong winds and lots of dry fuel up and down the canyons makes nearly anything fuel for the savage wildfire. A very fine home in Ventura County burned up on Tuesday after initially surviving the firestorm that raged over the fancy neighborhood. With a copper roof and aluminum-clad doors, the home had been specially built for wildfire country. But as San Francisco Chronicle reporter Lizzie Johnson wrote, when the family returned after the initial danger had passed, simply opening a closet door brought in an invisible supply of oxygen that turned an errant ember into an inferno instantly, and the people ran for their lives, ran for their lives. Everything was lost. 
Man has a common misperception that the desert is immune to wildfire, but wherever there is fuel, there is always the possibility of fire. The sand dunes of Imperial or Cadiz or Kelso even have enough fuel here and there. But the real threat lies in the canyons, upon the mountain ridges, and the fragile zones of pinyon and juniper at the higher elevations. A blaze tore through Mid-Hills Campground, my favorite campground in the Mojave, many years back, taking down a whole forest of pinyon that had shaded people and animals for many centuries. Your simpler acquaintances probably like to post those I love science memes on Facebook and whatever, but the truth is that Lots of science is new. Fire science is new, and it is hardly perfected. You've got relatives older than the relatively new and rapidly evolving discipline of wildfire management. Over most of the 20th century, when a fire broke out in the West, we put it out as fast as we could, and then we slowly figured out that burns were part of the Western ecosystem. We began to let some fires burn, began to even start fires when the level of fuel on the ground was too high, too dry. Controlled burns, they're called. Except who can control a wildfire once it's out of control? That's what happened at Mid-Hills and Mojave National Preserve. I've heard certain old cranks in the vicinity rant and rave about that particular fire and get so wound up in conspiracy theory that they've made a whole narrative about people, California firefighters in particular, conspiring to intentionally burn up the prettiest high country in the preserve. And you know, that is a pretty offensive thing to come up with, but people do get cranky as hell when they live out alone in the desert. So I've heard. Before the preserve was part of the National Park System, back when it was still the East Mojave National Scenic Area, I spent some time with the firefighters who lived out there who bunked in a double-wide for months at a time. They risked their lives and left their families to be ready to battle walls of flames through desert canyons to dig fire lines by hand in 110 degree heat. I remember one particular night in the middle 1980s when I sat up for hours with a couple of these guys, the ones who were off duty and therefore allowed to have a beer or two before bed. Some were veterans, some were right out of forestry school, some were seasonal workers giving it a try, seeing if they liked the work, if they liked the isolation. We told each other stories and watched the occasional set of headlights bump up the dirt road in the distance. The busiest night of the year, deer season. Deer season started in the morning, and there must have been 10 or 12, maybe 15 vehicles that headed up that dusty grade over the course of the night before I finally turned in, sleeping on the floor of the trailer, kindly invited inside by these firefighters. Everybody makes mistakes, and as a species, we are very good at making mistakes, but blaming firefighters for not always being able to turn off the fury of nature like a light switch, well, that just seems a bit unfair. A decade back, 
11 years, in fact, a number of devastating wildfires tore through the high desert. Through the small Mojave Desert communities of Yucca Valley, Pioneer Town, Pipes Canyon, and across parts of Joshua Tree National Park, the northwestern part up around Covington Flats. It burned right up to the patio of my old place in Yucca Valley. The Joshua trees went black on the north side, where the fire raged by. But the other side of the trees lived. They were weird-looking trees, weirder than usual for Joshua trees, but we loved them all the more because they had survived. Eventually, a wet winter came around, some dustings of snow, and sure enough, bright green new spiky branches began shooting right out of the ground, all that energy waiting to be triggered. I've talked to a lot of people who know a lot about invasive species, and they often talk about the culprit in many of these desert firestorms. Invasive weeds like red brome, which you'll see all over Joshua Tree National Park, all over the transition zones on the transverse ranges. Red brome looks like stubby wheat, reddish-green in color depending on the season, the seeds and oily fuel to carry flames from, say, a juniper on the ridge to a pinion ten feet away to a Joshua tree down the hill to some cat claw down in the wash. And the hotter it gets, the less these Joshua trees and juniper and pinion woodlands come back. I've been running around here for 35 years now in places that were once shady refuge for pinion jays and sweaty hikers just aren't there anymore. It's not cold enough in the winter anymore to get that little bit of snow these trees need. You still see the dead trunks here and there. Those great long pinion trunks, you see the charcoal stubs of junipers on the ridge. Not enough of the living trees, though. One reason I love the eastern Sierra Desert so much is I still see pinion saplings. I've come back to the same place the next or the next season, and they're growing into sturdy little conifers. Laura Pascas wrote a very good piece for the Santa Fe Reporter last year. It's called So Long Farewell, and you should look it up. It's about the high desert forests dying off in New Mexico, and it's a little bit sad, but nothing is permanent. Permanence does not exist. There is now. There is the past we know about. There is the past we don't know about. And there is, from our view anyway, an immense and unknown future. Sometimes we get a little peek at it if we open our minds to such things. But it is never settled completely because you, we, us, the things we do will affect what comes next. One day, hopefully, hopefully soon enough that I'm around to see it, we'll get ahead of all this one way or another. If we live that long. A little cooler in the winter, a little more snow, and our pinions and our junipers and our Joshua trees will start sprouting up again. They'll come back. There is nothing nicer than seeing new trees coming up on a high desert mountain. This is Desert Oracle Radio. The artist and filmmaker and all-around desert character, Kate McCabe, 
was kind enough to invite us to her Kidnap Yourself headquarters up on Yucca Mesa, where we sat at her kitchen table and talked about art and the desert and dogs. Let's just get this straight. I came here for rock and roll. I didn't come here for the art scene. My first friends were rock and rollers. The legacy of that's kind of what's in my work, too. Well, I think the whole legacy of the rock and roll vortex, yeah, it goes way beyond the people who bought, brought me here, for sure. I mean, we I'll never deny the Graham Parsons pull of the place. and How, how many people loved Graham Parsons? Like, I didn't even know how many people loved him until I moved here and had friends visit me that, like, had to go visit that. But, no, I first was filming on the Rancho de la Luna compound. I made a feature film called Stabia for Brant Bjork. And Brant, at the time was living on that property in one of the houses. There are three houses in the compound, the recording studio and two other houses. And I just saw the way they lived and was immediately like, well, what am I, hello? Like, what am I doing? Like, this is how I want to live. So it just made sense to me to come here immediately and work on the film. Like, I'd saved up enough money, too. But I basically worked on that film for a year, like, out of this house and got to just, like, live that dream of just making your work all the time. So I can't compare it to art scenes that way, but the people I met there, of course, they leave half the year. And that's when I realized I needed other friends, too. I was like, oh, maybe I should have some friends in the art scene or something. <laughs> that You know, rock and roll gives you great friends, but, yeah, then they leave. But people from Europe, England, like... South America, everywhere, came to visit them. So as as their friend, I got to participate in these amazing, like, kind of rock and roll cultural comings together because that's what happens. They meet all these amazing friends on the road, and then they come to the desert because they want to make music here. So I had access to a really amazing, beautiful group of people for, like, the first six years I was here. You know, I'm trying to travel with my films now, and I'm trying to... My experience has broadened beyond that circle. And they're still doing it, though. I mean, Iggy Pop was just... I mean, I'm kind of sad that I'm not as closely knit. I'm like, oh, damn. Totally missed when Iggy Pop came to visit, but that's okay. But that's how strong the pool is. You know, especially the way I wanted my house to be a conduit of creativity. There's there That happens here for musicians, I feel like. They're, they're drawn to the desert. They want to come write songs. I don't... I mean, I've actually written more songs here, and I'm not a musician. The artists that have come here came out of necessity because I got divorced. So first I was like, how do I maintain this place? You know, and I would work long hours. I had a dog. So I loved the idea of kind of having temporary roommates. So the deal was that they had to be working on a project. So it didn't matter if they were a jazz singer from New Orleans or... Uh, Jay Babcock, counterculture writer. <laughs> he stayed here for two months. <laughs> yeah. Or Anna Christie. No one usually stays more than six months is a little, like, long because I like also living alone. Yeah, I've had painters and dancers and glass blowers and all kinds of interesting people. And it's, so the house becomes a launching pad for their desert adventure because many of them already were drawn here but weren't sure yet where they were going to go or if they were going to build or buy or rent or stay or who knows. So usually I feel like 50% of the people that have 
stayed here, even briefly, have found their space in the desert. Kidnapping yourself is important. The desert can be a really lonely place. You know, I'm a loner, right? I'm not going to be without something interesting to do, read, write, or whatever, you know. Just taking a walk is enough sometimes, you know. So I think maybe instinctively and intuitively I can, I was kind of made for this environment. Dating is hard. I won't lie. I don't even let people know I'm Don't tell them I'm single. <laughs> it was accidental that, it was definitely beginner's luck that I ended up here because we bought the house in the rain. It was a almost an El Nino-y kind of winter, that winter. So I didn't realize how special this particular property was because I was looking for something that had trees because you can tell the older homestead cabins, the people were thinking about shade. They were thinking about, well, I would like to eat pomegranates. Let's have a pomegranate tree here. <laughs> I have a fig tree on this property I didn't even realize, you know. And then the spring came. It was covered in wild daisies. This higher elevation gets a little more snow than, say, like downtown Joshua Tree. So we have also a really long, extended wildflower bloom in the spring. But all of this happened because I found a puppy that was four months old after I lived here six months, right out front on my land. And we ended up keeping this dog, who eventually became known as Pickles the dog. And this space is special because there's like 160 undeveloped acres across and that view to Pipes Canyon to the west. So it's got this, everyone here has a panoramic view. If I may interrupt myself, I should warn everybody in the desert that if someone invites you to a place you've never been, you have to say yes, because each desert perspective is unique. So it's one of my rules that I live by here. If someone invites me to a new place, even if I'm dying or like with deadlines, I, like 99% of the times I have to go because I'll, I'll never get to see that unique corner of the desert again, you know. But this uh, higher elevation is cool, but I, this dog was crazy, like feral, amazing, bunny-eating puppy. So I had to train it, I had to walk it, I had to tire it out. So I learned how to be in the desert walking this dog. And I got had the D-I-V-O-R-C-E, so the dog... Um, helped me meditate through like a heartbreak like that was a you know a 10-year relationship but you know down the tubes so that dog actually even though she was wild and terrible and really hard to train <laughs> chasing her through the desert <laughs> while she's trying to kill bobcats or whatever um, gave me uh, a way to meditate that I wasn't even aware that I had in me it's a lot different than for running to the train because you're going to be late you know <laughs> like walking in the desert so I don't know it's been nice up here I kind of don't want to leave this part of the desert like I'm kind of a Mesa person now forever probably but the dog just passed away so I've been asking friends to um, go with me and usually this to go for walks with me and usually they say yes and that's what Pickles would say so it's been nice but I still now have this practice of walking that keeps me connected to the desert that I have to keep doing. This time of year, you can walk any time of day. You don't have to wait till the end of day. You could go at noon or 10 and, you know, not be dying in the heat. And you can relax a little more. That's the only thing I, I like about walking in the winter is that you can you can daydream more. You can have your head in the clouds with your feet on the earth, whereas... 
you have to kind of be a vigilant snake watcher outer, <laughs> you know, in the warmer weather. I love walking in the desert. It's kept me sane. I started writing about living in the desert. So I started, it started as a comic book, like a sketchbook, and I self-published it, and it's called Mojave Weather Diaries, and I think I started in 2009, and it became kind of a daily journal, but also inspired by how sailors would kind of keep logs, or since I'm from Philly, how... Ben Franklin had his poor Richard's almanac, you know, like words of wisdom and bad stories and bad jokes and also what the clouds look like. My name is Kate McCabe and we're on a little cabin on Mesa in Yucca Mesa and I've been here almost 13 years and I made a space that's a conduit for creativity. (laughs) That's what I use this house for. it for us for this week I want to thank you all for listening for coming out to the 10 shows and events Desert Oracle has done over this weird year it has been very nice to meet all you good people in moderation of course and our campfire stories program at the Ace Hotel in Palm Springs has been extended January 4. February 1, March 1, each of those dates being the first Thursday of the month, 7 p.m. around the campfire, yucca man and UFOs and murderers and monsters bring the kids the desert stories of our strange and unusual land await. And how about Desert Oracle, our guide to the American desert? Pick up a copy at the Hoof and the Horn or the Pioneer Town General Store or the 29 Palms Visitor Center on Highway 62, or Skylight Books in Los Angeles, one of my favorite bookstores in the world. I used to live right down the street from there. Years ago. Decades ago. As for the new issue, I swear to God I'm toiling over the thing and we'll get there soon. Lucky issue number seven. Soon, soon, I ask for your patience and prayers and etc. For that reason, because the book must be finished, we will not have a new episode next week, but there will be a Christmas week episode. Oh, we're going to be saying Merry Christmas to each other whether we like it or not. It'll be something else. We'll be broadcasting a few programs that fell through the cracks here at the radio station in Joshua Tree as well. Thank you for your letters, for your suggestions, for your subscriptions. You can write to us at P.O. Box 1735, Joshua Tree, California. You can send us email. The address is radio at desertoracle.com. DesertOracle.com is also where you'll find us on the internet. Around and across the Mojave, from Amboy to Zizix and across the Great Mojave Wilderness, this has been Desert Oracle Radio. Thank you for listening. 
and good night from the Voice of the Desert.